we'll continue with that teaching because the next chunk of Scripture is meant to go with the transfiguration. It's meant to be a contrast of Jesus' glory up on the mountain and man's utter sinfulness and incapability apart from Christ down in the valley. So we see this great, glorious picture of God the Son, of His humanity gets peeled back, so to speak. The veil of His humanity and His divinity shines through. And it's so glorious that Peter, James, and John want to pitch tents right there and just stay there. And I ask you, have you ever had a moment with God where you saw his glory so clearly that you just wanted to camp out there. You got a taste of heaven and all seemed right with the world. You were transported, as it were, to heaven. And then uh, reality came back. You came back down to earth and all of the struggles and disappointments and hardship and weariness of life on this earth came flooding back. And we do have those transfiguration moments. Let's be real here, though. That really happened. This isn't some made-up story in the Bible, some metaphor for this. But I just want to help you see um, a parallel experience you may have had in your life. But also know this, that later, Peter, the very one who was up on the mountain with James and John and wanted to pitch tents, would later say in one of his epistles that even though he experienced that, we have the more sure word. We have the more sure word. You don't have to experience Jesus with your eyes, and you don't have to touch him. Maybe one day we'll see him in heaven and um, he'll embrace us. And many are searching for some kind of experience. And Peter says, we have the more sure word. You can trust the word of God. This is the voice of God. This is God's revelation to us. Growing up in the San Joaquin Valley in Stockton in the months of January, February, March, we'd get socked in in fog. And it would get depressing, just downright depressing. And it could just, for weeks, you wouldn't see sunshine. And you knew if you headed up I-80 towards Tahoe and just got above 2,000 feet, there was sun up there. Ah. Illumination, clarity, life. And we would look for reasons to to head up into the foothills, up into gold country, and get out of the fog. And we understand we have those moments in life, often going on retreats. They hold retreats up in the mountains. 
uh, Hume Lake and Awana Camp up in the mountains. And we, we go up there to get out of the confusion and the chaos and the hectic pace of life and go up to the mountain for, for clarity. When I was finishing up seminary, Jennifer and I had prayed that we could minister in a mountain community. Now, to be honest, we were thinking Placerville, Sonora, uh, Green. Um, and he led us here. And we are both native Californians, me from Northern California, Jennifer from Southern California. We had never heard of Tehachapi. And we always took I-5 to go north, south. And what a gem, what a jewel. It's our home now. It's more home than anywhere else we've ever lived. And when we go down into Bakersfield to do our Costco shopping, inevitably we say, get me back to my mountain. A little slower pace of life, more time to think, a little more clarity up here. The apostles got clarity. They were beginning to see who Jesus really was, but before they could really soak it in, they had to come back down the mountain. And there's this chain of events when they get back down the mountain that really provide this amazing contrast between God's glory and God's ability and his power and man fumbling around down in the valley trying to make sense of life apart from God, trying to do things in our own strength, trying to exalt ourselves, trying to just get ahead and step over the next person to climb the ladder. It makes us all yearn for heaven, indeed. Nathan rightly pointed out the parallels between the transfiguration and, and Moses, if you were here last week. Moses led his people to the mountain, and Moses went up the mountain to speak with God, and he came back down with God's revealed word on tablets. Jesus took his apostles up the mountain to convene with God, except it turned out he was God. They went up to see God, and they got to see Jesus' glory revealed. And the word of God was revealed to them, not on tablets, but in the person of Jesus. And God the Father says, this is my son, listen to him. It doesn't give tablets. Listen to him. Obey him. Remember the last time we heard a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son? Where was that? Jesus' baptism. Where Jesus was identifying with humanity being baptized so that all righteousness would be fulfilled. Except that even though he is fully man like all of us, he's not like any of us. And so the voice of heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Then he goes on the Mount of Transfiguration and he identifies with divinity. We see his divine nature revealed. And again, we hear this is my son. 
On the cross, his two natures really collide, right? He's taking our place on the cross, but only God himself could endure the wrath of God. And this time, what do we hear from heaven? Good answer. Nothing. It tells us that on the cross, God the Father had to turn, as it was, from his Son, because he is holy, and all the sins of the world were on Jesus. And that was the true horror of the cross, not just the pain, physical pain, being separated from his Father, not hearing, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, so that you and I can hear, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. Only well pleasing to God through our faith in Christ, as we get credited his perfect righteousness. To go back to the parallel with Moses, the parallel ends when we recall that Moses ultimately did not lead his people into the promised land. He died on Mount Nebo observing the promised land. Jesus leads his people all the way into the promised land. In fact, he's there now preparing a place for all who believe. Seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for all the saints. The Old Testament said that a prophet like Moses would come, but he'd be the prophet of God. And certainly that is Jesus Christ, the prophet in the ultimate sense. Knowing that Jesus has already led us into the promised land, as it were. If you can really grab hold of that, the Bible speaks about that already being a reality in your life if you're a believer. You're in the promised land with Jesus. Yes, you're physically here, but this is just passing through. We get to enjoy many wonderful blessings here, but the bliss doesn't last very long before the harsh reminder of our fallen world comes crashing in and makes us yearn for heaven. And the Bible says you're there already. You're on the mountain of transfiguration. You, you can see the glory of God, but as Paul says, like in 1 Corinthians 13, through a glass dimly lit. It's veiled, like Moses had to wear that veil coming down the mountain. But one day we will see him as he is, and we will be like him completely. This is our great hope as Christians. In the meantime, though, we have to live at the foot of the mountain. Yes, we're already there, but not yet. And so today's sermon is about living at the foot of the mountain. We're going to come off the glory of the mountain into the valley, and we're going to see four contrasts between God and man. 
that will help us understand our place in the valley. Four contrasts between God and man that will help us remember our proper place in the kingdom of God. So picking up the story, verse 37, it says, On the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Typical. You know, when you come back down from the mountain retreat and go to work Monday, there's the crowd. There's all the paperwork and all the phone messages. And sometimes you're afraid to go away on vacation. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. He's my only son. Just like the widow at Nain. That was her only son, Jesus raised from the dead. And just like the little girl, Jesus raised from the dead, my my only child. You see God setting up the contrast. There's a father up in the mountain with an only son. There's a father in the valley with an only son. There's a father up on the mountain with an only son who's filled with the glory of God. There's a father down in the valley with an only son filled with a demon. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. So apparently this spirit would come in and out and leave the child physically harmed when it came out. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. First thing we need to understand this contrast between God and man is that God has the power. God has the power. The very thing these apostles were able to do just a short time earlier, just a few days earlier, they're now unable to do. What what happened? What changed? It's interesting. Jesus sends them out. They have this power from Jesus to cast out demons and to heal. Then Jesus goes up on the mountain for a short time, and while he's gone, they're completely incapable of doing what he called them to do. Like Moses going up on the mountain, and he comes back down, and they're worshiping a golden calf. You can hear the parallel exasperation. Moses coming down from the mountain. What have you done? Right? His brother makes up excuses. They made me do it. I threw some gold in the fire and out came this calf. And we all started dancing and partying and sinning sexually around it. Now, don't assume this word perverted is referring to any kind of sexual sin. 
The word in the Greek is diastrepho. Diastrepho. Strepho means to turn away, to, to change the way something's oriented. And you put dia on the front, and like when you put dia, diameter, all the way through the circle, it's diastrepho would be something that's been completely perverted, twisted, out of its original shape, out of its original orientation. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, this unbelieving generation, you have everything wrong. You get everything wrong. Your view of the world's wrong. Your view of God is wrong. Your view of yourself is wrong. Your belief in your own abilities is unfounded. It's misdirected. For three years, he's taught the apostles, and again and again and again, it's like they're not learning the lesson. This is holy, righteous exasperation. It is not always a sin to be exasperated, but I have a feeling most of the time when we're exasperated, we're probably sinfully exasperated. But here we see Jesus righteously exasperated with Israel and specifically the apostles. How long shall I be with you and put up with you? Wow. I think we could say that there's times in our lives where if we're hearing that from Jesus we have a verse here to tell us that indeed he could be righteously exasperated with us. I get exasperated with my children and I'm human. How much more does God have reason to get exasperated with us at times? And yet, at the same time, he's perfectly merciful and long-suffering, patient with us. But we should not, we should not presume upon God's patience and long suffering, right? I'll, I'll, I'll do what He wants me to do later, and I know He'll, He'll forgive me because that's the way He is. Uh, I'll stop sinning later. God, God will forgive me because that's the way it is. You don't presume upon these attributes of God. Trust me, even if you don't presume on them and you're trying hard, you're going to need God's long-suffering and patience and mercy. You don't have to, on your own, give Him the opportunity to have to display those attributes. And I fully believe that the apostles were trying their best to cast out this demon, but something had gone wrong. While Jesus was still approaching, the demons slammed him, the boy, to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. By the way, this was not an epileptic seizure. In fact, one of the other gospel writers mentions 
seizures apart from the demons. They knew what seizures were back then. They may not have known all of the physiological science behind seizures, but they knew the difference between a seizure and a demonic spirit. And it says that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. The two things that he had given the apostles authority to do, to heal and to cast out demons, they were unable to do it in this circumstance. But Jesus immediately, in front of everyone, in front of the crowd, is able to do immediately what they had been trying to do the whole time he's up on the mountain. I can only imagine the father. Where's your rabbi? Get Jesus. He'll be able to do it. Haven't you ever been online at the market and the poor checker, some kid who is in over their head, and you're like, get the manager. Let's skip the manager. Get the owner. Better yet, just move out of the way. I think I could figure this out. That's our attitude. I believe that what is going to be taught to us here is that the apostles believed they had the power in and of themselves to do these things. They got a little bit of ministry success under their belt and it went to their head. And I believe this because of the way Matthew tells the story, but also from experience. Let's be honest with each other. We often embark on ministry or evangelism or discipleship, fearing the Lord and calling on Him for His help and His power. And He answers our prayer and we experience a little bit of success And the next thing you know, you think it was all because of you and your great planning, your great organizational skills, your eloquent gospel presentation, your cleverness. And that's right around where God rips the carpet out from under you to teach us a lesson where the power really comes from. Who has the power to accomplish things that have eternal value? Oh, certainly by God's common grace, everybody is able to accomplish things in this world. God made us in his image and he gave us gifts and talents and he said, have dominion. But the things that truly matter eternally must be empowered by God for them to happen changing hearts, transforming people into the image of Christ. These only happen with God's power. Matthew gives us a little more of the story here, perhaps because he was one of the apostles who was failing at the task. He didn't get to go up on the mountain. 
He says, then the disciples came to Jesus privately. I love that privately. They didn't want to ask, why are we so inadequate and impotent in front of the whole crowd? And they don't even ask it that way. They just said, why could we not drive it out? And he, Jesus, said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. That's the way the NAS translates it. It's one word in the Greek. It's oligopistis. Oligopistis. Little faith. It's not talking about the amount of faith. He's not saying if you just had more faith, you'd be able to do it. That's what the name and acclaim it, prosperity gospel, health, wealth gospel teaches. If you're not being healed, it's because you don't believe enough. If you're not rich, it's because you're not trusting enough. And we know the Bible doesn't teach this, and then we run across the verse like this one where it almost sounds like He's saying you didn't have enough faith. But the point Jesus is making is you have the wrong kind of faith. If you had the right kind of faith in the right person, you could have faith the size of a mustard seed and you'd move mountains. If, it, if he was talking about the amount of faith, he wouldn't use a mustard seed because that's little. He's saying if you have the right kind of faith, then even a little bit of the right kind of faith is powerful enough to move mountains. You have faith in the wrong person. You put your faith in your own abilities. You've been watching too many Disney movies. You believe too much in yourself. Your problem isn't that you don't believe in yourself enough. The problem is you believe in yourself too much. We hear Jesus say this in another passage when Peter says, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother? Is seven times enough? And he was being magnanimous. And Jesus says, no, seven times 70. That doesn't mean 490 times. That means keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. A seven's a number of completions. So seven times 70 is a way of saying, don't stop. And Peter says, oh, Lord, increase my faith. That sounds so humble and so spiritual. But really, that's, I can't do that. I don't want to do it. And until you give me the faith to do it, I won't be able to do it. And Jesus will not be having any of that. He tells Peter a parable. And he says, a slave goes out in the field and works hard all day out in the sun and then comes in for dinner. And his master says, get me my dinner and a cool drink of water. And Jesus says, does the slave say to the master, I've been working all day. I should get to eat first. And Peter says, no, he does what his master tells him to do. And then the story just ends. No need for the, and therefore, Peter gets it. See, when Jesus says, if you have the right kind of faith, you can do the impossible, he doesn't really mean you can move mountains. We don't want mountains being moved. That'd be catastrophic. Imagine if everyone had that kind of power. 
Y'all get in these fights moving mountains all over the place. The mountains in life are the things that you think are impossible to do, like forgiving your brother. Say, well, if you have the right kind of faith, you can move those mountains. You see, as human beings, here's our problem. We want the power to do what God can only do. And then we deny we have the ability to do what God calls us to do. Oh, I could never do that. But boy, I want to do this because that's exciting ministry. That'll really put my name on the map. People will be impressed with my Christianity. Jesus says, go forgive your brother. Oh, Lord, increase my faith. Trust God to do the things only God can do. And trust God to do the things he calls you to do. And that is our place in the kingdom. God will be doing the impossible today. And he'll do the seemingly impossible in and through you as you trust in him. Like forgiving or even harder mountain, the Mount Everest of mountains, asking someone to forgive you. By the way, it says in verse 21, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. This, this uh, verse isn't found in the better manuscripts. And yet, Jesus would want us to pray and fast. But by better manuscripts, we would say old, older ones. So perhaps a scribe added this line. But in God's providence, we have so many copies so many manuscripts, we can piece them together and figure out where these lines came in. It's not that I at all want you to not trust your Bible. We have God's Word preserved for us so well. But you should know that this verse isn't found in the better manuscripts. And in that way, don't build an entire doctrine off of one verse of the Bible. Oh, see, the way that you cast out demons is by prayer and fasting, because it says so here. Anything you do, you should pray. And fasting wouldn't hurt either. But this isn't some secret formula for casting out demons. It's not a prescriptive. It's narrative. It's a story to teach us a lesson. It's not prescriptive scripture. The second contrast then is that God has the program. We don't. We do have a program. You get up each day and you have a program. There's the program that never changes. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Practice the spiritual disciplines. Share Christ with people. These things never change. The specific details of each day, everyone has to have a program. You do have to have a plan. The problem is when we start to think that whatever our program is for that day is the 
program. Don't you know? I've determined your program also. I've become the king of the world. And I begin getting upset when the world doesn't obey my commands and people don't adhere to the program and meet my expectations. So in verse 43, it says they were all amazed at the greatness of God. There's the understatement of the year. That word amazed, though, I love that in the Greek. It's, it's like uh, to, to be out of your mind. Like, what do the kids do today? They do that, you know, you know, just blew my mind. But while everyone was marveling at all he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Why did he tell them this? Remember, they're still operating under a different agenda, a different program. The program is, wow, he's got the power, he's Messiah, we're going to go into Jerusalem, he's going to take over control of Israel, rip it back out of the hands of the Sanhedrin, and then he's going to assemble his army, and we're going to march to Rome, and we're going to overthrow Caesar, and that's the plan. That's the plan in their minds. It's still the plan in their minds, and every time they see Jesus do something amazing and they're marveling, it only reinforces the plan in their minds. And this happens to you and I. Often things happen in life that should shake us out of our stupor and put us back into the God's program, but instead we start interpreting everything happening around us as evidence that, yes, the program is going exactly as I've planned. Until it doesn't. And then we get mad and we get upset at people. Every day we need to start the day with, God, it's your program, you have the power, it's your agenda, help your servant to be watchful and ready to obey your commands and follow your lead. It says they did not understand this statement because it didn't make any sense in their program. That's not part of the formula. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. They didn't even want to ask a follow-up question. In Jesus' mercy, he doesn't elaborate on the program. They're going to head to Jerusalem. If he told them, look, Here's the program. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to be crucified. And eventually you're all going to be martyred. All right, let's go. I say that tongue in cheek, but I, I want to say this for your benefit and your edification this morning. Because I would say that the number one discipleship counseling issue we see here at the church is anxiety. Mr. MABC, Master of Art and Biblical Counseling, is nodding his head. Anxiety. Because 
you don't have as much control as you think and things aren't going according to your plan and and the answer is sovereignty of God, but you can't just sit down with someone and read them Romans 8.28 and send them out the door five minutes later because they've built up, built up, built up these expectations and these fears. And they don't just go away in a minute. Rome wasn't built in a day. Those ruts have been built over time. It's going to take a lot of time of deconstructing those false views of the world, false views of God, false views of your own sovereignty, false views of your own power, and build a new rut, trusting in God's goodness and his greatness and his authority and his power, that nothing's going to happen to me today that isn't part of the program. Often I hear people say, if I just knew what the future was, the anxiety would go away. No. No. What if you knew about that car accident that's going to happen June 5th, 2018? You really think you're going to have peace as the date approaches more and more and more and more anxiety. Praise God in his providence and in his great mercy and his wisdom. He only reveals the things to us, the things that we need to know now. I was talking with uh, Mike Borsier. Uh, He and Nancy went on a a trip. They're doing the truck and trailer thing with, with some friends. In the friend's trailer, all the lights went out on the trailer. And uh, I had to pull over and find a place to work on it. And they're kind of in the boonies. Plus, I don't think there's any way Mike's paying someone to work on an electrical problem. (laughs) The wires they need to get to, though, are lodged behind the spare tire. And they can't get this thing to drop. You know, the way they were putting spares in now. You need the secret key and the secret compartment and, and, and get it to drop. And it blew a good portion of the day that was not in the agenda. And knowing Mike, he had an agenda. And this was not part of the agenda. They finally figured out that there was a secret tool in the glove box that you needed to release the spare tire and have it drop. They were able to get to the wires. They fixed the wiring Lost a half a day of their trip. Next day, the friend has a blowout. And instead of being on the side of the road as the sun's going down, not knowing how to get the spare down, we know how to get the spare tire down. There's the secret tool in the glove box. And sometimes God lets us see what he was doing. And you say, wow. And that's just an example that's not a life or death kind of thing. Or maybe it could have been. Being stuck on the side of the roads, a scary place to be. God doesn't always show you what he was doing. Sometimes he does. 
And it's a great occasion to say, he is so smart, he is so wise, and he is so loving. And even when he does show us what he's doing, I'm convinced it's not all of what he was doing and is doing. You realize how interconnected our lives are and what happens to you affects this person, which affects this person, which affects this person, and this is how God providentially works. It's not that he just knows all the future contingencies like some infinite chess champion. It's that he's in and causing all the contingencies to work out. Some people, theologians, are so afraid of God's sovereignty that they make up this view of God that he only guesses the future. And he's a really good guesser. It's called open theism. The Bible does not teach that God is guessing the future. He has the power. He has the program. We know the end of the story, and it's not just that God is hoping it's the way it turns out. He tells them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And then we find out later, after the resurrection, when they're all depressed, the angels come and say, Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Didn't he tell you that he would be delivered up into the hands of men, that he'd die and be risen on the third day? And they go, Oh, yeah, huh. He did mention something like that, didn't he? Jesus said, let these words sink into your ears. When life is scary and you're in the midst of trials and suffering and anxiety is overtaking you, let these words sink into your ears. God is really in control. He has the power. He has the program. He's not taking a nap. He's still in the driver's seat. He did say that he would work to conform you into the image of his son through trials and suffering. Oh, yeah, he, he did say that, didn't he? I didn't write that one down in my notes, that sermon, because who wants to be excited about future trials and suffering? But he did say that's how he'd work. And so when you go through trials and suffering, you don't say, God, what is going on? It's not supposed to be this way. You need to say, he did say, in this world, there will be trouble. But it's momentary light affliction compared to the promised land where there's no affliction. Thirdly, God has the preeminence. God has the preeminence. It's the spot we all want, but it belongs to God alone. Get this, after the Mount of Transfiguration and then coming out in the valley and seeing the ineptitude of the apostles unable to cast the steam and out and then watching Jesus do it instantly. Just a few moments later, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their hearts, took a child and stood him by his side. This isn't the only time this happens, which leads me to believe that there were always children around Jesus. I love that. 
I love children. I love that my Lord loves children. You know, somebody get me a child. No, there was always one by him. Every time his apostles were acting like stupid, foolish children, he had a child nearby to go, look, here's the greatest in the kingdom. How could he be the greatest? He's got no real talents, gifts, experience, wisdom, or power, authority, or... And as soon as you figure that out about yourself, you might be of some use to me. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Let's, let's work backwards. Who, who sent Jesus? The Father. If you want the Father, you have to receive the Son. Well, who's, who's presenting the Son to us? The apostles. So if you want the Father, you need to receive the Son. If you want to receive the Son, you need to receive this child. He's telling them, you're children. You're children. Compared to me, you're, you're just babes in the wood. But God has set up the system this way to draw out the humble into his kingdom. You don't go to the erudite and the, the uh, triple PhD Harvard policymakers in Washington to get to Jesus. You, you get to Jesus through the children of God, us. Not many who are wise, not many who are strong. You know 1 Corinthians. That's the way he has set it up. You must be like a child to receive the kingdom of God. And then he says, for the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Okay, so if you want to be great in the kingdom, I've got the formula for you. You, you have to come to realize that you're the least. That you've got nothing. But in Christ, you have everything. So give people Christ. Don't give them you. Don't give them your opinions about Christ. Give them Christ. And you can't be focused on wanting to be the least so you can be the greatest. Because then you'll end up with that false humility. Okay, well, if the greatest in the kingdom is the most humble, then I need to work on being the most humble. I am the most humble person in the kingdom. Therefore, I am now the greatest. It doesn't work that way. In fact, the more you focus on humility, the less humble you often get. So what do you do? You focus on Christ and forget about being the least. That's how you become the least, is you decrease and he increases. Stop. Come on, let's be honest. Have you ever done something very humble around the church, hoping people will see? Or maybe you didn't plan it that way, but in the middle of doing it, you're like, you know. It's crazy the way our pride works. You can't stop it from happening. You repent of it, and you move on with serving the master. 
and stop worrying about whether anyone is noticing. This happens to me a lot around here because you work with your mind a lot and you don't get a lot of opportunities to work with your hands as a pastor. And so I love pushing that big old vacuum, the big blue one, you know, you know, and the people are like, oh, look, the pastor's vacuuming. Like some great act of humility. If only you knew, I can't wait to use the vacuum. It's, it's for me. But when people say that to you, immediately your pride goes, well, yeah. I'm, I'm, that, I'm that guy, right? Jesus tells a parable to his apostles about going to a dinner. And instead of wanting to be in the best seat of honor, he says, better to sit at the end of the table and have the host say, brother, what are you doing down there? You belong up here. Which, of course, means that whoever's up there, you need to get out of that seat. That's not your seat. I thought it was my seat. That's why it's not your seat. That's why he's going to sit here. That's the guy we all want to be. It's just so elusive. How do you stay humble? Focus on God's power and his program and you'll be humbled real quick. Focus on your power and your program and you'll swell up. And if you don't repent, God in his love will show you how pathetic you are eventually. That's the hard way to be humbled. So the, the easier way is focus on Jesus and his glory and his power and his program and his preeminence. And the rest will take care of itself. It'd be okay if at the end of your life and they came up to do your eulogy, they said, wow, he or she worked so hard for Christ and accomplished so many things. But it would... Only glorify God if they said, and yet he or she just, that never seemed to be important to them. That's the people who accomplish the most for Christ. They don't care about the notoriety. They don't care about that part of their legacy. That just takes care of itself. If all you care about is Jesus being received by people as Lord and Savior and you don't care about your own fame, then you will be great in God's eyes. Finally, God has the playbook and the players. This one's really fascinating to me. So right after Jesus says that, John answers and he said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him for he who is not against you is for you. So the apostles' hearts were that, wait a minute, that guy over there who's doing work in your name, he's not an apostle. 
He hasn't been trained by you. We don't know if this person was even being successful at the casting out of demons. But the point is that since God has the power and the program and the preeminence and the playbook, he gets to determine the players and where he puts them. And the way I apply this verse to my life as I look at Tehachapi and all the different churches here and all the different pastors and I say if they're preaching Christ not my job to decide what goes on over there my job is to shepherd this flock my job is to shepherd this flock and sometimes people leave our church and go to another one. And I make sure that the church they're going to is preaching the gospel and upholding the word of God. But they may not do everything the way that we do it here. And that's okay. If they went somewhere where heresy is being taught, I would warn them. But never, hey, wait a minute. You can't go over there. When I see another church do something exciting in the community, I applaud, I cheer. Great things are going on at the other Christian churches in the community. That's a wonderful thing. Do they always teach and do things the way I would? No, but don't assume that I have the right or you have the right formula for church. We're going to search the scriptures and do the best we can based on what we believe the scriptures are teaching us. And we'll find opportunities to work ecumenically where we can. Like the walk to Emmaus and other such ecumenical ministries. But not all ecumenical ministries work out real well. And it's okay that we admit that. We always have good, well-intended people, almost seems monthly, come to me and they have this grand vision to get all the pastors in town to stop what they're doing and do some big ecumenical event that they're planning, of course. And, um, and we have to go through this talk. Oh, hey, God, God bless Pastor Kevin over at, at um, Bear Valley Springs. God bless Pastor John over at Stallings. God bless the new Pastor John over at First Baptist. And all the other men that I have a great relationship with, but that doesn't mean we're going to all stop the ministry God has called us to do. And it's, I have no problem with the, what they're doing over there, and they have no problem with what I'm doing over here. God is the playbook and the players. I don't have to be in charge of all that. Neither do you. Isn't that a relief? And that goes for inside this local body. You're in this ministry and you're leading this ministry. That ministry's not what you're in charge of. If you have a real concern, then you go to your brother privately, as God says. But so easy to judge and criticize when you're not in charge of a ministry. So much harder to run a ministry. 
So you go to your brother, and if you have to, you go to the elder who's in charge of overseeing that ministry, and we'll talk it out, not put people in their place. We'll talk it out. We'll get all the information. We'll see what's going on. Maybe you don't have the whole picture. That's usually the case. You don't have all the information. You don't know what's going on, so you don't have to insert yourself. That's not the team God puts you on. You're on this team. We're all part of the same team, obviously, but I'm okay with this. I want you to be okay with this. This is your place in the kingdom. God puts you in this ministry. Pray for those other ministries. But boy, a lot of damage has been done in the name of Christ because well-intentioned people decided the wrong players are in the game. Really, you're putting so-and-so at power forward? (laughs) So you'll enjoy your church experience so much more if you're not the person who's watching all the ministries and deciding who should be the leader of the ministries and what study they should do and what day of the week and when they should do it. And that's exhausting and quite frankly sinful. So God has the power. God has the program. God has the preeminence. God has the playbook and the players. We're one of the players. Run, run, run the plays that are in the program, and trust God for the rest. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we're so glad we're on your team. Thank you, Christ, for making a way for us to be on a team. Only righteous people belong on your team, and we have no righteousness of our own. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us our righteous uniform as it will. Help us to know what our places in the kingdom and to work with the power that you've put in us, the same power that raised Christ from the dead to do the work that reaps an eternal reward. Help us not to get caught up in the details of life that don't lead to anything eternal, but to focus on the gospel and discipleship and evangelism loving one another, serving one another. These are the things that can only be accomplished by your strength, and so you'll get all the glory and all the credit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.